0: Start now, and uh, let's uh, let's open in prayer. Father, in the, in the name of Jesus, we just come before you, and we come to you in the name of Jesus. And, and indeed, it, it is the sweetest name we know. And we ask, Father, that you would open up your word, as we enter into this new book, this book of Romans, Lord, one incredible book that's set before us. We pray for the outpouring of your spirit, that you would anoint your word as it comes forth, that you would speak to our hearts, to the depths of our hearts, Lord, and that as we go through this book, as we study this incredible book that you inspired Paul to write, that our lives would be changed and our lives would just be different, Lord, when we get through this book, when we finally make it through. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, a heart to receive, and a will to obey, Lord. You're going to show us things, Lord, I'm just so Mm -hmm. excited about it. Now look forward to what you're going to do, and we, uh, we just pray and commit all of this to you, Lord, in your precious name. Amen amen okay well romans we're going to start out in romans let me do this okay There we go um as we get started just you know we want to start with a little background work i mean i was going through it this how, how did everybody do this week yeah it was i mean i don't know about you guys man i had a rough week spiritually rough so i'm thinking we might be in the right book you know because there was just a spiritual battle was raging throughout the week so the only thing I could put together was we must we must be in the right book or in the right place to be to be battling the way I was battling it was it was brutal. But praise the Lord, I'm feeling pretty good right now. Like we're gonna, we're going to see what God's going to do tonight. I'm feeling good now. Um, it's so good to be here every Saturday night. It really is. And and I would just as we start, really really be praying because as I'm going into this book um, and starting to dig into it. Um, you know, it's one of those things you get into it. And, and I mean, it's, I'm over my head. This, this, this book of Romans is incredible. I mean, this, this is amazing. Every time I look at it, it just gets more and more incredible. Now it's a great place to be because the only way to get through it is by relying on the Lord and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct and open up his word. So it's a wonderful place to be. Well, sometimes it's easier to say than it is to go through because sometimes when you throw troubled, it's like, oh, what am I going to do? But pray um, that, that God would bring others out to this study to hear what he has to say in this book of Romans, because as I'm going through it and I'm really thinking it through and everything, I, I, I don't know, just to me, for the time that we're living in and what we're going through, This book is so important for where we are as a church right now, the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the foundation of the righteousness of God, you know, that's revealed to us. And and we're going to go through all of that is so important. And one of the problems that we have in our society right now and in the world today is because the church isn't where the church is supposed to be. The ineffectiveness of the church in so many ways, and a lot of it has to do is because we've lost sight of this. We've lost sight of what Paul's going to speak to us, what the Holy Spirit's going to show us as we go through the Book of Romans. And so, so pray. This is it, it's a it's a good thing to go through. It's a good thing to hear, and it's what the church needs now. We don't we don't need to get the right con- you know right people in Congress. We don't need to pass the right laws. We don't need to get the, the Supreme Court to do any of this kind of stuff. What the church needs to do. Is to be grown in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church needs to understand the righteousness of God through His Son Jesus Christ and live accordingly. And that's where the change will start to take place. The change is not going to take place in Washington D.C. The change takes place starting in the pulpit and right out through here. That's where the change takes place and where it has to take place. So, so really, and I'm not trying. to Look, don't don't put somebody in a headlock and drag them out. I'm not asking you to do that, but but just pray that God would stir the hearts of people who are, are living in these days and they're struggling and they're wondering and they're watching and their hearts are aching. And, and, and you know, they, there's things going on with them that they would come out and just really see what the Lord has to say in, in, in this book of Romans. That was just on my heart, you know, I was just praying about it. Um, you know, God has so much to tell us through the book of Romans. And, and as we go through it, we just pray that he'll show us everything he wants us to see. Um, okay, so we start out just a little background that we will get out of the way and then we'll start really digging into it. Um, the Book of Romans very obviously was written by the Apostle Paul. Um, he wrote this epistle. The letter was written around 57 or 58 um, AD. He wrote it at the, at the end of his third missionary journey, uh, just outside of Corinth, um, as when he wrote it. Um, he was ending up his, his, his third missionary journey. He was on his way back to Jerusalem. He wasn't sure yet God hadn't promised him that he was going to make it to Rome. He desired to go to Rome, but God hadn't promised him that he was going to go to Rome. And so what happened was um, he wrote this letter um, to Rome um, before he ever got there. Um, It was probably written about about three years before he got to Rome. The people, you know, as we closed out the book of Acts and, you know, went through those things with all the church of Rome coming to greet Paul and everything. By that time, they'd had his letter for about two years. But that's kind of the timeline that you're looking at there. It, it's pretty much agreed upon, widely believed that a lady named Phoebe of the church in Sancria, which is a which is you know outside of Corinth, that she was the one who actually delivered this letter to Rome. She brought it up there, and I looked at that, and that amazed me, because here's this this lady Phoebe. Who is she? What does she look like? How much do we we don't hear anything about her? But Phoebe was given this letter by Paul and trusted to take it from Greece, from from just outside of Corinth and take it all the way to Rome and deliver it. Like, like she had no idea what she had, obviously, you know what I'm saying? That this letter here, as we look at it, was entrusted to one person. And that one person, that one trip takes that letter. And here we are today, looking at this letter that here, Paul penned it 2,000 years ago. And a lady gets the letter and goes on a trip and travel let me tell you something you never know obedience to the lord you never know what god's going to do with the obedience you know she was just a person being obedient and god used it tremendously to to impact us with this incredible incredible book of romans uh romans is is in many ways different from all of paul's other epistles um the other epistles his focus was on church issues as he wrote to all all the other epistles obviously (laughs) <laughs> letters to corinth man you know where do you begin with the letters of Corinth? but he was dealing with issues in the churches or he was dealing with pastoral letters you know you know titus and timothy and all that and those lines in this letter right here paul's you know he's not writing to a church he's not writing to a pastor he didn't establish or plant a church up in rome and so as he, he writes this epistle uh to them uh, he desires to get there. He, he greatly des- desires to get there, but he's focusing on God and his great plan of redemption is what he's focusing on as he writes to him. You know, the church is is growing in Rome. There's there's issues within the church, you know, with people coming in, false teachers, Judaizers, all kinds of things going on. And so for Paul as the apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, there was an imperative in him that he wanted to get a letter to them. And, and I mean, again, this letter is so incredible concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wanted to get that to him. And part of him sending the letter up there too was to prepare the believers for when he would come up and visit and meet with them. Um, again, he wrote this He wrote this letter before God assured him that he would go to, to, to Rome. Um, and so as you, you get a flavor of that when you read the letter. But again, he just felt they needed a thorough explanation of God's plan of redemption, of salvation. Um, and, and that's what he wanted them to know. Um, To say the least, um, as you look at it and you read what people say about it, Romans is a masterful presentation of the gospel of Christ. There's guys who call it the magnus opus. I like that magnus opus. It sounds so impressive. Um, Some call it the first in every list of Paul's teaching. One person referred to Romans as a a flagship in the fleet of of, of Paul's epistles. I thought that was a very colorful way of saying it and everything like that. The point is, is that this, this letter to the Romans stands out incredibly it really really does it's a masterpiece it's it's progressively constructed um and it's a formal writing and it comes to us in three major parts and the three major parts are this the first eight chapters as we look at it and and some of you guys have already started reading but chapters one through eight it's how the gospel saves a sinner um it's god's righteousness revealed in condemnation justification and sanctification as you go through that believe me when we get you know start to the last half of chapter one and chapter two those are some rough chapters to get through and everything but his righteousness is revealed in those three things throughout the entire thing it's clear and it's logical as Paul goes through here he just builds he he makes a point and he just builds on point upon point upon point as he goes through it. But it's very logical and it, it's progressively logical as he goes through the letter. It's really an amazing thing. Chapters 9 through 11, tell, is, it's about how God relates to Israel um, and those. It's God's righteousness revealed in his sovereign choice. So the first, the first eight chapters deals with God's righteousness revealed in, in condemnation, justification, and sanctification. Chapters 9 through 11 looks at God's righteousness revealed in his sovereign choice. And then when we get to the last chapters, chapters 12 through 16, what that deals with, it deals with how how the gospel bears or how the gospel influences our conduct. One thing you always have to remember that duty always follows doctrine. We just don't get great doctrines from the Bible to say, hey, that sounds really good. No, when you learn the doctrines, there's a duty. To be obedient with the things that you've learned from the doctrines that have been presented to us. But basically the last, the last chapters, 12 through 16, is God's righteousness revealed in transformed living. Listen, a person who's born again, washed in the blood, filled with the Holy Spirit, should be living a transformed life, period. That's the life we all should be living. And so as we get into those last few chapters, that's what it's going to be taking a look at. Um, the book opens up with an introduction It, it closes with a, with a conclusion at the end of it. So there's just a little bit. We'll start with the introduction today, but, but that's, that's what we're going to be taking a look at. Um, make sure I didn't miss anything else in this, in this presentation. Um, we talked about at the end of Acts um, about Rome. As far as we know, there was no apostles who made it to Rome. And so, again, you know, we talked about this. The question is, well, then how did the church develop in Rome? What what happened? You know, there was no committee. You know, there was no sending thing. There was, you know, nothing was overly organized. What happened? How did the church begin in Rome? Well, as you put it together from the day of Pentecost, when the Christians were at Pentecost, they got saved and they dispersed. Some of them went back. Many of them went back to where they came from. Christians went back to Rome. Rome was a place where many people went in and out of. I mean, it's the capital of the entire world. But what happened is the people from Pentecost went back and the Holy Spirit, through them, began his church. That's a novel idea, isn't that how, how the Holy Spirit does that? And he starts a church and, he builds, and God builds his church. You know, it's, it's the church of Jesus Christ and, and Jesus builds his church. But the point is, is that the church in Rome was a work of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's something we need to remember in our day. Look, whatever takes place here, anything good that takes place here, and the only good thing that takes place here is that Jesus Christ will be glorified, is a work of the Holy Spirit. Beyond that, nothing else is happening. It's got to be a work of the Holy Spirit and everything. But that was, that was the church in Rome. It was, it was not planted by anybody. It was not developed by anybody. It was God himself. And we don't have a lot of details about it. And I like the fact that we don't have a lot of details about it. Because if we got details about it, somebody would organize it, package it, put together some DVDs and some PDFs and try and make some money off it. You know what I'm saying? They try and sell it and get it out there. We have no idea. And I don't care who tells you. The only thing we can say about the church in Rome is that it was a work of the Holy Spirit. That's the only honest statement we can say about this church. And so this is the church who Paul is writing to. And uh, we'll pick up in verse one. Paul hasn't been there so he needs to make make an introduction of himself as he starts this thing out he needs to kind of introduce himself he says Paul a bondservant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness." by the resurrection from the dead, through whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Boy, that's an opening right there. That That is a big opening. Again, The vast majority have no idea who Paul is. They they know he's an apostle. They know some things about him, this and that. But Paul's going to lay out and says, let me give you a couple sentences and and, and introduce myself to you as what he's doing here. He opens up by first, and I love this. The first thing he says is, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing he opens with. He says he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. This word for bondservant is doulos. It's a slave. I mean, you can't color it. You can't dress it up. You can't make it fancy. He says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ, which those in Rome would understand and they would know because they had a million slaves. They had as many slaves in Rome as they did you know, regular citizens in Rome and everything, regular people there. They had a million slaves in Rome. So as he's writing to these people, they, they know what a slave is and they have a very good understanding of it. And what Paul's saying is, saying that he's a bond of Jesus Christ, he's saying out of loving devotion towards Jesus, Paul chose to be his slave and to completely obey his will. That's what Paul's saying. He's not saying, like, I just chose to do some nice things with Jesus, or I just chose to do a little. Paul says, no, I am choosing to relinquish all of my rights in order to be your slave. I want to be your slave. I want no rights of my own. I relinquish everything to you. That's what Paul's opening up, and that's what he's saying in here. You get a picture of this in Exodus um, uh, twenty-one verses one through six, and Exodus twenty-one one through six, where a servant who had, he served his time he was he was he could go free. The servant could go free if they wanted to, but because they loved their master, they chose to devote the rest of their lives to their master and it's a picture of a bond servant. And that's the idea Paul's talking here. He says I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. He chose to be a slave to Jesus for life. Now, what's important is Paul was a bond servant before he was an apostle. Paul was a bond servant before he was an apostle. He says, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus of Jesus Christ first And then he says, called to be an apostle and separated to the gospel. Paul was undoubtedly probably the greatest man in the development of the early church. There's no argument about that. The influence, the missionary journeys, the church planning, the things that Paul did. He was a great theologian. He was a master of the Old Testament. I mean, you know, nobody doubts Paul's use and what God did through Paul, in Paul and through Paul, in the development of the first first century church. Um, He was one of the greatest intellectual minds of his day. I mean, he was a Roman. He had all kinds of privileges. Paul had all these things going on. Yet, in spite of all this, Paul, out of love and devotion to Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. chose to be his slave Mm -hmm. first and foremost. He he, He knew that his life was not his own. And what he recognized, and we all need to recognize, what he knew was that his life had been purchased with a price. He knew that his life had been purchased with a price and that price was a precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what his life was purchased with. And so no matter who we are, what our gifts and callings are, in order for us to be productive in the kingdom of God, in order for us to be productive or to be fully used by Jesus to his glory for all of us, choice one is we need to choose to be a bond servant. We need to choose to be a slave. We need to choose to relinquish all rights to ourselves in order to live fully for Jesus Christ. If we hang on to anything, then we're not gonna be able to live fully for Jesus Christ. We have to let it all go to relinquish every single thing. There is no higher privilege in life than to be a bond servant for Jesus Christ no higher privilege. If you find it, you let me know. If you find it, you let me know. But there is no higher privilege than that. True freedom in Christ does not begin until we relinquish all our rights and completely surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul could have stopped right there, but he got out of the gate. And this is the first thing he wants these guys to know. He says, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He then goes on, he says he was, he was called to be an apostle. And I like this, he was called. Paul didn't wake up one day, check out a, you know, career choices and things like that, or you know, wake up and, and in his ambition says, you know, I want a career in the church. I think apostleship is a pretty big call. I, I think I can do it. I'm qualified to do it. Paul didn't do any of that. Paul was called to be what he was. And that's how it works in the church. And that's how it still works in the church because the church hasn't changed. If Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is, and if Jesus Christ is ahead of the church, and if Jesus says, upon this rock himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail, then nothing has changed in the sense that to be a servant of God, you need to be called by God in order to do that. Paul was called to be an apostle of jesus christ he's called to be an apostle of god is what he was he'd been designated as it is is called he'd been designated and he'd been set apart for all of that and please understand that whatever you do in the church if god has called you and he needs you need to have god call you in order to do that that everything that you do if you're sweeping the floor you're sweeping on the floors or changing the trash It's your faithfulness to what God has called you to do. It's what you're doing is as important as anything else that is taking place within the body of Christ. If the master calls you to do something, how much more important can your task be? It is an important task in all of that. Now, an apostle was one who was sent with delegated authority. So the apostle, in a sense, you know, as you look at the apostle, you think like these are big shots and big, important people. They had delegated authority, okay? They were representing somebody else. It wasn't all about them. They were representing somebody else. The great one was the throne that they bowed the knee to. That's where the greatness lay in, was the throne that they bowed the knee knee to. But they were a person who was sent by authority. They were sent by authority and with a commission. Lay hold of that. Because if God has put a call on your life, whatever it is, you've been sent on authority with a commission. You know, you've been, you've been sent to do something. Go out there and do it. Whatever God has called you to do. Just get out there and do it. Paul was no less than, than an apostle in the 12. Um, Paul walked in great authority. Again, but the authority he walked on was based on the authority that he was under. That's the authority that he walked in. We walk in the power of the throne to which we bow our knee. What throne do you bow your knee to? That will determine the authority that you walk within. If you bow your knee to the throne of Jesus Christ, you are walking in the authority of Jesus Christ. And this is the authority that Paul walked in because that was was the throne that he bowed his knee to. He goes on and says, and we're still in the first verse, he says he was separated to the gospel of God. In Galatians uh, 1, 15 and 16, it says this. It says, but when it pleased God, notice who separated me from my mother's womb. That's a sovereign calling right there. That is sovereignty. I mean, it doesn't get more, I mean, that is sovereignty. He says, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his, notice through his grace, To reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul was called, he was separated from his mother's womb. He was separated to the gospel that far ago. There's other people in the scriptures, Moses, Jeremiah uh john the baptist you know people who were separated early on but i think the thing to understand they were separated you know like john the baptist was doing he was doing somersaults inside you know elizabeth and everything like that but but the thing is is that you know god separates us to the gospel and the question i wrote to myself was and the question for you guys is what has god separated you to what has he separated me to Listen, I'm telling you, as we go through this, our lives are going to be changed. And if our lives aren't going to be changed, we might, we might as well just hang it up. This, this, this is going to change lives. Our lives are going to be different. I know my life's going to be different. My life's already, I, I, it's, it's, it's already grabbing a hold of me. It's, it's, it's incredible. Now, this idea of separation, it has nothing to do with cloistering yourself away like a monk. That's not a biblical thing that I can see anywhere. Poistering yourself. Shape, I'm, I'm halfway there, right? I'm ready to go. I guess all I have to do is start drinking beer and I'll be in. You know, it's like, I'll be good to go as a monk. But it's not cloistering yourself away like a monk. Paul, Paul worked everywhere he wanted. The only way you could get Paul away from pe- people was to throw him in jail. He, he went, he mingled with the people. He, you know, we saw him in Athens what he did there. He worked. He, he mingled with people. He, he went everywhere. Every, everywhere he went. But Paul had relinquished all rights to himself. He laid aside his personal ambition. He laid aside all of his his interests, his desires, and, and goals for the cause of Christ. See, when it says he was separated for the cause of Christ and everything, when he was separated, it's not about separating from people and society and all this kind of stuff. That's not what it's talking about as we talk about it. Paul laid aside. He separated himself from his personal ambitions, from his interest, from his desires, you know, I got, I got to be honest with you. You know, when people talk about retirement things and, and things in this world, I, I just got to tell you, it just doesn't tickle my fancy. It just doesn't do anything. I'm not saying, I, you know, i like to get away here and there and things like that. But Jesus is coming. I'm separated to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm separated to. We need to be separated from that in the days that we're living in right now. He had no, per, he separated all his personal ambitions, interests, desires, and goals, and he separated himself from all of this stuff for the cause of Christ, is why he separated himself from all that. Anything that would prevent Paul from following Jesus with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength had to go. Anything, anything that would get in the way, that's what it meant when he separated himself. He did that. The person who would be most effective in the service of God must burn all bridges. You want to be effective in the service of God. You need to burn all those bridges. We need to burn them all. There's a story you guys might have heard it before about Cortez when they came to the new world. And they landed on the shore. And the first thing Cortez did was he burned the ships. Because they were in the new world. And there was no going back to the old world. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Have you burned the ships? Have you burned the ships? You know, we need to burn the ships. Today's a great day to burn the ships. We got to burn those ships. There's no, there's one by one friend, David, as you guys remember, David, one of our little things we say to each other, there's no going back to Egypt. There's no going back to Egypt. Oh, the onions were so good in Egypt. No, 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 no. There's no going back to Egypt. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. We're full speed ahead. We're separated the gospel of Christ. Anything that prevents us from following Christ, from serving Christ, from being submitted to Christ, from being a bond slave of Christ, all of that has to go. It has to go. We need to, we need to be sold out and live in 100% for Jesus Christ. Now, as he goes on in verse 2, he goes on and he says this. He says, he says, which he, which the Lord, what Jesus promised before through his prophets, God promised before through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. Now what he says, I'll read verse 1. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separ- separated the gospel of God. Now the gospel of God, the gospel which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. The gospel is not something new, not some cleverly concocted teaching that Paul's discovered. Paul didn't just you know discover this like it's something new and it's concocted or anything. he he wasn't you know as as they say he wasn't teaching a theological novelty this wasn't something new that he was teaching or anything along the lines it's the original promise of god found throughout the entirety of the old testament scriptures it was all there in the old testament you know as you go through genesis and and we someone some of you guys were with us when we did the study through genesis and i'm just amazed as you go through it because in in genesis chapter 2 it's verses 21 through 23 when god causes the first Adam to go into a deep sleep and then from his side takes and forms a woman, his bride from his side. And then, and then the Lord brings the bride to Adam. This is such an amazing picture of Christ, of the church. You know, there's so much in there. That's Genesis chapter two. I mean, as you work your way through Genesis, there's so many pictures. As you work your way through all, all you know, the whole five books, the Pentateuch, it's all there. As you work through the history, the, the poetry, the prophets, you work through the entire Old Testament, you see Jesus in every book, in every chapter, you see him on every page of it. This wasn't something new that Paul was putting together at all whatsoever. But it was Paul's calling. He says, you know, this is his calling to reveal and bring out to people what the Old Testament teaches, you you know, to show people Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Old Testament is what he was doing. It was a calling that he had. It's a calling that all of us have. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. We need to really be students of the whole Bible, students of the Old Testament and students by the power of the Holy Spirit to know how. To take someone from the old testament and bring him into the light of, of calvary the light of the new testament and show how it all relates to christ and god will give you the ability and the power to do that he'll he'll, he'll allow you to do that and that's what paul was doing right here and it's an amazing thing when you when you show christ through the old testament it's really something else we need to take the concealed of the old testament you know as they say And show how it's revealed into the New Testament. There's so many ways that we're able to do that. But that's what Paul would do. Now, verse 3. This is talking about the, the, you know, the gospel. But he says, concerning, verse 3, his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, notice, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The centrality. The centrality of the gospel is not some new set of teachings. That's not the centrality of the gospel. It's not a moral system. It's not a religious creed. It's not a religious system. The gospel is not about really good advice. Okay. The gospel is a divine message concerning a divine person. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, our Lord, the only begotten son of God. And that's what he's saying to him. He goes on as he's looking at these verses, he stresses both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Jesus is both fully man and he is fully God. We need to, this is, you know, when you look at Christ, you need to understand that he is fully man and he's fully God and it's presented to us right here in these verses. The miraculous virgin birth of, of Jesus established and fulfilled the promise as to the seed of David. His resurrection from the dead, declared proved Jesus to be the son of God the resurrection from the dead validated the claims that Jesus had concerning his deity he goes in there and he tells it right here Jesus Christ our Lord he was born of the seed of David and then he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by what by the resurrection from the dead now according to the spirit of holiness the holy spirit to you say know, I like that when it says that this is all accorded to according to the spirit of holiness I like that according to the spirit of holiness the holy spirit had descended upon Jesus at his baptism the same power that the holy spirit displayed in Jesus as he lived a life of of absolute unblemished perfection in this in this in his earthly life was on full display in the resurrection as Jesus arose from among the dead i like what it says in second timothy 2 8 remember that jesus christ of the seed of david was raised from the dead according to my gospel i mean paul's just a few things in and he has just just touched on depths of just theological significance it's that's just amazing The gospel was and remained the centrality of all that Paul throughout his whole, whole lifetime. That was the centrality of everything that Paul taught was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul consistently taught that the gospel was and is a divine message about a divine person, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He consistently taught that Jesus was fully man, fully God, risen in power from the dead. And the thing is, and this is amazing, the message never got old. The message never, never got old. In fact, there was a newness every time he declared it. Think about that. I mean, has the gospel gotten old for anybody here? I mean, the gospel has. I mean, it. It. When I talk and start getting into it and thinking about it and meditating, it just gets exciting. There's a newness about it. There's a freshness about it every time. This was Paul's message. There wasn't no. No tricks, no, you know, anything like this. Let's make something new and exciting. Let's get a bait and draw a man. Let's do this and do that. Paul presented to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he presented it consistently. He He presented it without apology. That's what he presented. He presented it biblically. He presented it according to the scriptures. And he never, ever stopped doing that throughout his whole ministry life. He never stopped doing it whatsoever. It's a message that never gets old. And just remember, the same is true today. The same is so true today. Listen, you don't need gimmicks in the church. You know, you don't need to have a bowling night. You don't have to have a hot air balloon drop or something like that. You don't need all the, let's have an ice cream night. Let's have a roller skating night. Let's have this and that. What you need is right here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't need any of that. You don't need any of that. Paul didn't have it and the church was growing. The church was growing during his time. Verse 5. He goes on. He says, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Among whom you also are the call of Jesus Christ. So it says, he says, through him we have received grace and apostleship. It's through Jesus that we receive our call. We've established that, that we receive our call to ministry through Jesus. But we don't earn ministry. We don't make ourselves qualified for ministry through seminary or through years of all these service and all these things. I've done this and I've done this. And we got a whole list. We come in with a resume like we're trying to get a job or anything like that. We don't become a member of, of the club. You're, one of, you're on the inside circle now and everything. It's not, it's not like that. We receive by grace through Jesus Christ. That's how we come into ministry. We receive it by grace through Jesus Christ. Grace comes before all ministry. Grace comes before all ministry. You can't start ministry if it doesn't come through grace. All grace comes through ministry. Salvation will always come before service. Grace will always come before ministry. All true ministry, all true service to God, is a work of grace it really is it's a work of grace and sometimes we get so comfortable and so used to it we forget that but it is a work of grace that's what Paul's saying here through him we've received grace and apostleship he received grace before he received the apostleship any call to ministry is a privilege and it's a privilege according to the grace of God for the glory of Jesus Christ. Any call to ministry is that. And Paul was a man who always saw his apostolic calling, his commission, the power that had been bestowed upon him, Paul always saw it as as incomprehensible grace. It was just a grace that was, was, was just mind blowing. And that's how he always saw the things that he had, his apostolic calling, the power, everything that he did, it was a result of incomprehensible grace. Now, Paul's calling came through Jesus according to God's grace. Therefore, for Paul and for all of us, his response was total. It was complete obedience to the one who called him. It says in 1 Samuel 15, 22, we know it well, but to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is always better than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, 22. And it's only through complete obedience to God's word that we are truly able to represent Christ before those before those to whom we've been called. It's only through complete obedience. You know what's interesting? I think I think it's numbers. Twi- I think it's numbers twenty. I'm not sure. Somebody'll look it up. But when 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 Moses struck the rock, twenty one. When he struck when he struck the rock the second time. And God blessed the people with the water anyways. Oh, it's the wrong one? Okay, strike that, wrong one. <laughs> we'll find it afterwards. You know, everybody's got the little phone. So we'll find it real quick. But the thing is, the people were still blessed, but Moses misrepresented God before the people. He struck the rock a second time, and he struck it with anger, and he struck it in disobedience, and he paid a hefty price for doing that. But the point is, as he did that, he was not truly representing the Lord before the people. Let me tell you something. This is important for anyone who stands up or anybody who's in leadership, wherever it is. You are not representing yourself. You're representing somebody else. You're representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way to represent the Lord Jesus Christ is by being totally, completely obedient to every word he says. If you lose half your congregation for it, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord if you lose half your congregation. It's a good thing. But you got to be obedient to what the Lord is telling you to do. Paul's attitude always was, and our attitude has to be the same: was obedience to the faith, always, it was always Mm at. He brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. Paul brought it to all nations, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But he brought it to all nations in order that they might simply believe in Jesus Christ, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what he wanted to say. He wanted them to simply believe and come to the same obedience of the faith that he had. Is what he was looking to say. And finally, all that Paul did, and all that we do in ministry, and it ends up here. It says this: through him we have. We have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. Notice this, for his name. It is for his name. Paul recognized this, and we need to recognize this, that everything we do in ministry must be for the name of Jesus first and foremost. It has to be for the name of Jesus first and foremost. It's all about Jesus. It really is. It's all about him. The second we lose sight of this, ministries get derailed. Ministries get derailed. They ultimately turn into a train wreck is what happens. They turn into a a train wreck. And if repentance doesn't take place, that train wreck could take place pretty quickly. But it's all about Jesus. Think about it. This is what happened to the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus got so busy and so focused on doing so many good things, right? jesus said that doing a lot of good things you know but they lost sight they lost sight of their first love is what they did their ministry became about what they were doing and it was no longer for the namesake for the name of jesus christ you know it's a funny thing that happens a lot of times you'll ask people sometimes i'll do it sometimes i've done it with people who are leaders in the church i shock them you know sitting down talking i'll just say how's your walk it's like, nobody ever asked me that. Well, somebody should have. <laughs> you know, I mean, everybody needs to be asked how your walk is doing. But invariably what happens when a lot of people are in Christian service and you ask them how their walk is, they'll tell you what they're doing for Jesus. They won't tell you about their relationship for Jesus. See if I if you ask me how Michelle and I are doing, I say, well, you know, I I took the trash out, I took the recycles down to the curb, and and uh, yeah, I cleaned up the front thing. You told me I, and I I haven't told you anything about me and Michelle. I haven't told you anything about that, and that's what people do. What Paul understood and what Paul knew was that everything he did was for the name of Jesus Christ. He didn't get caught up. And what he was doing for Jesus, he was caught up in Jesus and he did it for the name sake of Jesus Christ. And always remember this about the mistake, the mistake, you know, the the, the transgression of Ephesus. A failure to repent in Ephesus paves the way for Laodicea. You need to repent in Ephesus because if you don't, you're going to end up in Laodicea eventually. One of the things we look at, he says, through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Verse six, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So as you take a look at this, notice a repetition in the first things of of being called. You're you're being called. The word for called is kletos, And what it means, it means to be invited or invited to obtain eternal salvation. It means being divinely selected or appointed. Uh, But in this case, and as we look at the call that's going on, what we see in the call is the sovereignty of God, God's sovereignty on display. And what we have to understand is it's always God who initiates. We can only respond to what God initiates. God will always be the initiator, and we will always be the ones who respond to what God initiates. Now, we have to choose to be obedient to the faith. We have to choose to simply believe in Jesus Yet our ability, our ability to choose is according to God's grace. We can never have the ability to choose apart from God's sovereign calling. That has to be in place. That has to be there. Now, let me say this. This is marvelous. (laughs) And this is beyond us. And I can't wrap my head around it. I can only just say, praise the Lord, that he called me and I was able to make a choice but I couldn't choose if he didn't call me, but he called me. The church has spent a lot of time discussing this and arguing all kinds of things going on. I'm just going to save you time. If you want to argue with me about it, just go have a bowl of ice cream or something because I ain't going to argue with about it because I can't. All I know is that I chose to give my life to Jesus Christ. And the reason I chose to give my life to Jesus Christ was because God and his sovereignty called me. Now, does it sound impossible? Does it sound crazy? Yeah. But the Bible says it. And I'm good with it. I can just, I, I'm, I'm good with it. It's a marvelous thing. And as Paul's going through it, he's talking about this call. It's, it's really something else as he's going through it. Because he says he was called to be an apostle. He was, he was separated. We see these people are called. I mean, it, it's over and over again. And so with Paul and with his church of Rome, one thing Paul's bringing out, we talked a lot about it in the book of Acts. The sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God in all things. Listen, don't ever lose sight of God's sovereignty. Look at it. Look at the world around us right now. I got news for you. Last time I checked, the back of two twenty still in the Bible. That God is still seated on His throne. He's still in control. That was the last time I checked. Maybe I'll check after the study. But it's still there. God is sovereign. God is control. God has given His word. Everything's going to happen according to His will. There's nothing for us to to be concerned about or worried about or anything along those lines. As hard as it is and difficult as it is, we need to remember the sovereignty of God. Now, as he goes on, just a few other points here. God knows all who he has called. He knows the people in Rome. He knows every last one of them who he's called. Isn't it nice in the world? that's so big and everything. God knows everybody who he's called. I forget people. You guys forget people? You know, I forget people. You know, I work in a place where someone had their car in there three years ago. And they come like, hey, Paul, how you doing? <laughs> Man, I'm I'm in a, I'm in a jam now because I have no idea who this person is. You know, I forgot. You know, I just forgot, you know. And, and, they, and, and it happens. We forget. God doesn't forget. Not a thing. Not a thing. God knows all who he's called. He knows the location of all that he calls. It says in 2 Timothy 2.19, it says this. The Lord knows those that are his. And I think that's important because sometimes, especially with what's going on in the world today, you almost feel like over here, you know, I'm over here, I'm over here. You know, you want to almost put like a, a tracker on you or something. God's got you tracked. God knows where you're at. There's there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Those that have chosen to believe in the finished work of Jesus. We become a part of the family of God. Think about that. We become a part of the family of God. And therefore, as he says here, he says, through him, going down, let me go down to verse verse 5 through 7. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the call of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, to all, to all who are in Rome all who are in Rome and then notice this beloved of God we're beloved of God I mean for God to love the world and we know that and that's amazing but we're children of God like you think about a parent with a child when they become teenagers it gets tougher but when they're children when they're little you dote on them you know you love on them you, you, you're amazed at the things that they do. You're amazed at the curiosity of them. You know, you, you get tickled. They make you laugh. You know, they're obedient most of the time. You know, and all, and all these things are going on. They're beloved. I mean, I, look, I, I, my, my, my daughters are older. I mean, they wear me out because they're still beloved of me. I mean, that's why they wear me out because I still, they're beloved. They're my daughters. They'll always be my daughters. I'm an earthly father. How much more? Are we beloved of our heavenly Father? Paul wants these people to know about the calling that they have and everything that they've received through Jesus Christ and through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wants them to know as he's wrapping this introduction, as he's wrapping this part of his introduction up, he wants them to know that they are beloved of God. It feels good to be loved. It feels good to be loved. You know, as parents, you know, you can do so much to a child you know, and, and and so many things with the way you treat them and how you love them and everything like that. To be beloved of God. Oh, how awesome, how wonderful it is to be beloved of God. It's an amazing thing. And finally, as he wraps this up, as you get through this whole thing, he says, verse seven, he wraps up, he says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Uh-oh. We're saints. Uh-oh they just started an argument in the church how about that we're called to be saints okay it means we're set apart to be a saint means we're, we're set apart the, the, the ecclesia or the church is, is is a set apart assembly it's just an assembly that's set apart and this assembly that's set apart and i guess it makes sense is set up a set is made up of individuals who are set apart as well so you got a, a group of set apart individuals saints okay you know, and, and we're a part of this whole group that's all been set apart. And, and we're getting more and more set apart as the days go forward and everything like that. And that's what he's saying when he says the saints, he says, you're, you're, you're set apart. You're set apart. You're, you're called, you know, you're beloved and you're set apart by God. God has you set apart. The idea is that he's really got you set where he can, can watch you and take care of you and, and do all these things. But But that's all that a saint is so we don't have to start calling each other saints we can stay stick with brother and sister but but we're we're, you know but the truth is in the essence of the word we're all saints as we go and then he wraps up with grace and peace this is Paul's common greeting uh the Greek greeting of grace and the Jewish greeting of peace was always there this was something it was very common that he did Um, This, you know, as I looked at that and I thought about this, but sometimes we see grace and peace so often in Paul's letters that we kind of just, you know, go past it real fast. But I I was thinking about that, that grace and peace. This always has to be present among the body of Christ. You can't ever walk into this room and not experience the grace and peace of our Lord. It needs to be here. It needs to be here. When we come here, and as a body, we need to be praying and preparing our hearts. We're family. This is the body of Christ. And when you come in here, there needs to be grace, and there needs to be peace. And I'll step up first. I need a lot of grace. I need peace too. But but I need I need grace. We need to extend that to one another. This is the church. This is the body of Christ. As Paul started out, it's such a beautiful thing to say that grace and peace. I mean, are you ever in situations where there isn't grace and peace? I mean, man, next thing you, I'm, I'm ready, you know, I'm ready to fight or something, you know? It's like, you know, I mean, it gets, it's crazy. It is, it's nuts. But true grace and peace, and we have to remember this, can only come from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It can only come through that. May we as a body of believers always, always experience the grace and peace that comes from the Heavenly Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. May we always experience that grace and peace in our lives because we need it. We need it. We really do. We've been saved by grace through faith. We have peace with God through His beloved Son, Jesus. And with all that, may God's grace and peace, you know, just sustain us. Sustain us in this pilgrimage that we're on at all times. It's just one of those things. He says it so often, we get so used to it. It's like where people say, oh, you know, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. Wait a minute, what does that mean? You know, really think, and it's one of those things with grace and peace. It's, it's just an amazing thing that Paul says here. Okay, verse eight. He says, first, now he just got done his, his introduction. So now he's just, <laughs> now, that, now I've started there. He's just getting warmed up. You know, he's just in the warm up phase. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Remember, He hasn't He hasn't been there yet, so He hasn't He hasn't been to Rome yet. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. In verse 12, he kind of explains verse 11. He says, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you in parentheses, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also just as among other, the other Gentiles, I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So Paul begins and he sets before us a beautiful example of how our heart should be towards the entire body of Christ. He's showing us a, a great example here. Paul didn't plant this church. Paul had nothing to do with the plan of this church in Rome. He he had absolutely positively nothing to do with it. And again, for the most part, he might know a person or two, you know, in the travels and all that kind of stuff. He might know a few people who have gone there and come back and things like that. But for the most part, Paul really doesn't know anybody who's in this church in Rome. He doesn't know anybody there. He doesn't know him personally. Yet, Yet Paul is deeply, Deeply and sincerely thankful for these people in Rome. There's not, a hint, there's not a hint of jealousy that admits from Paul. There's nothing from Paul that admits any jealousy. You know, I didn't plant the church in Rome. You ought to see the church over here. You ought to see the church over here. You know, let me tell you about this church. None of that admits from him whatsoever. There is, there is nothing but a depth of true sincerity as he says this to them he says i thank my god through jesus christ i mean for you isn't that something Would to god that we could say that about each other all the time that we're thankful for each other through jesus christ i mean we need to we that that needs to be our heart not to say it but that that would be our heart you know in the church today the jealousy just abounds you know if you're from this denomination or if you're from this particular movement or things like that well you know he's not one of us, or they don't do church like we do, or we don't do anything like that. Paul had none of that. I mean, look, if there's bad doctrine, bad teachers, you know, things like that, the Judaizers coming in, trying to get people to come come in and do stuff to themselves physically that they shouldn't be doing and and just committing themselves to, to, to back to the law. Paul had none of that. He wasn't putting up with any of that. But as far as the body of Christ goes, as far as true believers, it didn't matter to him. He thanked God. Through Jesus Christ for everybody. But today it's everywhere. Remember this about jealousy. It's a work of the flesh. Just look, go to Galatians 5. You can do your own homework. It's right there in Galatians 5. Jealousy is a work of the flesh. Paul, great example, has no jealousy whatsoever. Paul sees a body of believers in Rome, called by God and beloved by God, a church that has counted everything loss for the cause of christ a church that is true to the name of jesus christ and true to the word of god this creates in paul a thankful heart for what god is doing they've thrown you know there's churches in, in in africa or churches in vietnam or churches in the Philippines, or churches in Cuba, or you can go to all these countries, or churches in the Middle East that people don't even know about that are meeting in secret and everything like that. We need to thank God with all our hearts for what he's doing in those people. And and, and Paul, we're going to get into it, but praying for them without ceasing? People we never even met? That's really amazing as you look at that. He notes that their faith is spoken of throughout the, the entire Roman Empire. When he says through the whole world, what he's talking about is the entire Roman, Roman Empire is all spoken of. With, you know, people, kind of, well, you didn't really mean the whole world. You just meant the Roman Empire. I'm thinking, well, the Roman Empire was pretty big. You know, last, you know, when I looked at the map, it was pretty big. It got everywhere. And, and the word got out everywhere about the Christians, about the church in, in Rome. It makes sense because a lot of people went to Rome, traveled in and out of Rome. It was a capital of the world as it, as, as it were. But this was done without modern technology. Is that something? It was done without modern technology. It was done without self-promotion. It was done without you know magazines and things like that talking about all the exploits and everything that you're doing within your churches or your movements. It was done. It was done with all. It was done with all of that. The word got out. And, and let me tell you something. I I I've, I've been involved with with. Things that happened, you know, like, like events that happened years ago. The amount of money that was spent, okay, probably could have sent 1,000 missionaries overseas, 1,000 missionaries overseas. Boy, I'll tell you what a lesson that is to learn from that, to look back on that. The amount of money, the massive, massive amounts of money that was spent. It was really something else. Just to maintain it. Just to maintain it. Just to maintain it. That, yeah. I was only on the front end. I don't know what happened on the back end. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of money. Amen. But these guys, without anything, these Christians, you have to understand. Now, words get down out of Okay. It's not like, you know, and I don't want to pick, but we got magazines to go out there. And they put all the exploits and these are our outreaches and we're rah 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 we're doing this and rah 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 we're doing all these great things we're doing everything like that okay whatever that's not what this was about. See, they lived in a vile, depraved, filthy, just—I mean, it was it was debauchery. I mean, it was it was it was just you know it was it was anything goes in Rome, and yet they were a prestigious intellectual you know the roman Colosseum wasn't quite built yet but they had all these prestigious and intellectual things and educated things and all this stuff going on if it starts sounding familiar yeah it sounds like america i get it okay it does you know vile depraved and all this and that that's what these people lived in they weren't like within the roman within rome they weren't popular within rome they weren't famous around the world because everybody's oh, them they're good people. You see what they're doing? They're feeding this person over here, and they build an orphanage over here. They just it wasn't that. They hated them, they despised them is what it was. And Paul's in here saying, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Your, your faith is spoken of throughout the entire world and everything like that. Now, other Christians would be praying for him, encouraged by him, but Rome couldn't stand them. They couldn't stand them. And let me tell you something: born-again Christians in the world today can't be stand, stood either. And it's only gonna get worse. I remember when the COVID thing first started and they were shutting down the churches and everything. I didn't say a word. And, and this guy, obviously he was from another store and he came over and he started making some remarks about the stupid Christians wanting to go to church on Sunday. And I'm like, say what, you, know, like, like, what? you want you try that again? You know, and everything like that, you know? And it was like, wow, they don't, they're looking for a reason. They had reasons to hate them, and that's why they were so popular everywhere around the world. I think of myself, as things move on, how will our faith be spoken of? How will our faith be spoken of? I know how some faith in the church is being spoken of. But how will our faith be spoken of? How is that going to be spoken of? Verse 9. He says, "For God is my witness, and this is I want to dig in a little bit, for God is my witness who I'm served with, with, with my spirit and the gospel of the Son, notice that without ceasing, I make mention of you in my prayers. Paul wants them to know that without ceasing, he is always praying for them. Now I'm, I'm going to tell you flat out, when I, when I hear something where someone's praying for me or something, man. uh, i can't tell you what it does to me i can't tell you the encouragement it really is we need to be praying for each other but paul this is an amazing statement that he's making first of all he doesn't he doesn't really know these people and not only that how many churches has paul already planted that he's already praying for and how many things is paul tied up in and somehow how does paul how do you find the time to pray without ceasing he's not lying you know first thessalonians what is it 517 paul says that we are to pray without ceasing okay and we can okay you can do you know you you, you know you can walk through your place of business and do a 100 Nehemiah's. i call him you know when nehemiah stood before artaxerxes and you know he, he says i prayed before the king what was it like a two second prayer and god answered it but but it was prayer and God heard it and God answered it because God's awesome, because God's mighty, and that's why it happened. But Paul prayed without ceasing. How often do we pray? How often do we pray for others? I mean, that's we. I'm saying we, you know, all of us, how often do we do that? This is an amazing statement that Paul makes here. So you have to understand that the, the ministry of prayer is an unstoppable ministry. It's the one ministry, Mark and I were talking about it before. You know, you think they're going to shut down again? You know the Delta variant. Like, ooh, you know, I feel like I'm back in the twilight zone. You know, it's like it's coming. Ooh, it's scary and all this. I don't know what's going to happen, but you can't shut down the ministry of prayer. You can put a person in prison. You can cut off their tongue. You can cut out off their ears. You can pluck their eyes out. You anything, but as long as that person has breath in their lungs and 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 they're conscious enough, they can pray, and you can't stop it. Prison walls cannot stop the ministry of prayer. You know, putting people under house arrest cannot stop the ministry of prayer. You know, shutting down the churches can't do it. None of these things can do it. It can't shut down the ministry of prayer. What an incredible thing it is. It's a privilege to be able to pray for others. It really is. prayer allows us, and think about this, prayer allows us to join with any ministry at any time at any place in the world. Is that something? You can be a part of any ministry, anytime, anywhere in the world through prayer, through the ministry of prayer. It's an awesome, it's an awesome thing as we take a look at it. Now, again, Paul at the time of this letter, he, he hadn't been to Rome yet, he hadn't been to Christians there. So therefore, a part of his prayers, he was praying in his prayer was that, if it was in the will of God, as he's praying, he says, if it is in the will of God that he would be able to make it to Rome. Remember, he hasn't made it back to Jerusalem. He hasn't survived multiple riots and he hasn't had Jesus come to him and tell him that he's going to go to Rome. He doesn't know that he's going to make it to Rome. He's not. He doesn't understand whether or not he's going to make it to Rome or not. He doesn't know it at this, at this, at this point in time is the time he wrote the letter. But it was simply his desire that he did want to get to Rome and he wanted to make it there. Now, He says in here, and it's it's really important, he says, um, he says in verse 10, make a request by some means now I at last may find a way in the will, notice, in the will of God to come to you. I want to say this about prayer. God's will is absolutely essential in our prayer life. God's will is absolutely essential The simplicity of what we call the Lord's prayer. In Luke 11, verses 2 through 4. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Jesus, when he was in the garden, when he is in Gethsemane, the night, the time he's to be arrested, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus, in the garden, fully man, set aside his will, for the Father, where he said, he asked if there's any other way, if there's any way that this can happen, that I don't have to go through what I'm going to go through, if there's any way this is possible. But then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. In prayer, the will of God is absolutely essential. A total surrender to the will of God is the key to a victorious prayer life, it is the key to a victorious Christian life. It must always be, nevertheless, not as I I will, but thy will be done. See, what we have to remember is that the victory of Golgotha is won by prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, those battles that we fight in, the battle, the victory at Golgotha was won In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed, wept, sweats of great, great drops of blood. We see in here where Paul's longing to get to them. He says, verse 11, for I long to see you. There's a longing in Paul's heart to see them. It reveals his pastoral heart. See, Paul was a missionary. Paul was an apostle. Paul was a pastor. Paul was a shepherd. He loved the sheep. Paul, Paul he, he loved the sheep. He really did. It was his pastoral heart. Paul wanted to see them. Paul wanted to serve them. Paul wanted to see them built up and strengthened in the body of Christ. Um, the idea is that through Paul's spiritual gifts at the church in Rome, you know, as he said, he would come there and through Paul's spiritual gifts, that the church in, in, in Rome would be enlarged and it would become established as he, as he went in there. They'd be, they would become settled within their faith. Not that they weren't already growing and God was doing things, but he just wanted to come in and be a part of that. Verse 12, he clarifies what he says, you know, because he says, I long to see that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. And then verse 12, he, he kind of qualifies what he's saying, or, he, or he makes it clearer what he's saying. He says, that is, that is, what I want you to understand this, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and of me. So he clarifies that. By letting them know that while he is confident in Christ, he's confident in Christ that he would be a source of blessing to them. He wanted them to know that the fellowship of their mutual faith would be an inspiration to him. It would be what he was saying. This will be a time of mutual blessing in Christ Jesus. It's going to be a time of mutual blessing. It's not like the great Paul has come on the scene and everybody wait and fall down at his feet and all this kind of stuff and everything like that. And while you were blessed because I was here, anything like that. No, Paul's saying you are going to bless me as much as I am going to bless you because we have a mutual faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what God does. He blesses both of us. He'll bless both of us. Note the humbleness. Note the humbleness of Paul. Again, he is a great apostle to the Gentiles, a great apostle Paul, right? He's being used amazingly by God, yet he does not view himself as being greater than anyone in the body of Christ. Paul doesn't view himself as being greater than anyone in the body of Christ. Revelation chapter one, the apostle John tells himself, I think the word is a a co-laborer, like a You know, someone who suffered, a fellow sufferer with with, with the saints and everything. John didn't see himself as anything better, anything different, anything greater than anybody else. Paul, humbly, sincerely, this isn't a false humility, Paul saw himself as not being greater than anyone else in the body of Christ. He knows before God that their ministry, this is what he knows, he knows that their ministry uh, uh, to him will be just as powerful as his ministry to them that's what he knows and that's an honest statement he knows it's truly truly mutual he's not putting on a show or anything like that and i think we need to understand that i think that's one of the things that that sometimes are missing in the church sometimes the ones up in the front think they have more to give than what people have to give to them sometimes people come into the pews and they're just saying like (laughs) give me give me give me you know and everything like that it's a mutual thing It's a mutual faith. Listen, before you come to church, get filled up, pray. God's not just bringing you out to bless you and to be fed and all that kind of stuff. You need to be a blessing to someone else. Somewhere around, you know, we all need to be blessed it's a mutual blessing. None of us, no one's greater than anyone else. And Paul understood that. If anyone had a right to say he was greater than anyone else, it was the apostle Paul. And and, and Paul didn't see it that way. Paul saw it as as a mutual faith that was truly mutual. Paul wanted them to know, verse 13, he says he wanted them to know that he tried to make plans to come to them, but he was hindered. He was hindered along the way in his plans to try and make it there. First Thessalonians 2.18, it tells us there are times when Satan hinders, hinders us, and that can be frustrating. But the one thing you have to remember when you remember about Satan hinders and everything, remember what we started out with, God is sovereign. See, Satan, okay, actual permission satan doesn't have you know this freedom to do whatever he wants wherever he wants and however he wants everything that he does is done by permission job chapter one and two you can read it right there you can read with peter where, where, where it's, he asked permission to do to peter to try peter he asked for permission to do that and was given permission to do to peter what he did, he has to have permission to do these things. We have to remember that the sovereignty of God. Paul was hindered, but he was hindered within God's sovereignty. All the perfect time and everything was taking place. Paul says he was hindered, he was hindered, but God is in control. And the point is, with all Satan's hindering and everything like this, and it, he's been doing it for a long time, it's got to frustrate him to no end. Everything that he does for hindrance and things along that way will ultimately work towards God's will being accomplished see the bottom line is with everything that satan's doing there's going to come a point in time when the full glory of jesus christ is going to be revealed completely to this world that's what revelation is all about the complete unveiling of jesus christ and there's coming a time and with everything that satan's doing it's all going to come and it's all going to work out to this is what's going to happen that the full glory of jesus christ is going to be revealed he can't stand in the way of that he goes on, he says this, he says, I, he says I, I don't want you to be unaware, brother, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. Notice what he says, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks, to barbarians, both the wise and the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. He says to you that I might have some fruit among you. This isn't a selfish statement that Paul's making, okay? There, there's no selfishness in the thing that he's saying here. Fruit is a work of the Holy Spirit. Fruit is a work of the Holy Spirit. See, see, the flesh produces, you know, it makes things. It, it's, you know, it's, I, who is one thing? It's, it, it's a, a, a garden, not a factory, you know, talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the Holy Spirit, you know, produces fruit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Fruit is the evidence of maturity in Christ. A mature Christian is going to be a fruitful Christian. If you've been walking with the Lord for 40 years, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you're, you're not producing any fruit, dude, you're walking around in a diaper. You need to get serious with the Lord. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's, it's just not, it's not working out. But fruit is the evidence of maturity in Christ. It's the evidence of a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. John 15 verses 1-8 about abiding in the vine That's what it is the evidence of because there it says that you will produce much fruit to the glory of the Father as you abide in the vine. Paul simply desires to be a part of what God is doing. That's what he desires. He wants to be a part of what God is doing. And what's incredible, and I love this, God rewards us for being a part of what he's doing. I mean, all we have to do, he calls us, he equips us and empowers us and all we have to do is step forward in obedience and faith and then he rewards it and he sets everything up along the way he provides the resources he provides the introductions he provides the places he opens the doors he prepares the hearts he does all these things and then we just step up in obedience and then god says i'm going to reward you for that will <laughs> You know, it's, it's really. I mean, it almost doesn't seem fair. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I, I like it, but it's really something else. Paul also wants those in Rome to know that he is a debtor to the entire Gentile world. Now, he was the apostle called to the Gentiles. He describes first. He describes the Gentile world. He describes it broadly in two ways. First, there would be the Greek world and the non-Greek world. I, I thought I, was, I, I thought this. You know. <laughs> My, my big fat Greek wedding was the first thing. There's Greeks and then you're not a Greek. You know, it's like there's only two people in the world. You're Greeks and you're not Greeks. Well, he's, you know, he's, he's addressing it. He says there's, there's the Greeks, there's the Greeks, and then those who are not Greeks. But then he goes, secondly, talking about the Gentile world, would be the wise and the unwise. And this is basically referring to every level of intelligence that there is. That basically he's a debtor, you know, if you're dumb as a doornail, the most brilliant person in the world, he's a debtor to everybody. No one's off the list, whether you're Greek or you're not Greek. And whether you're, you're of high intelligence, middle, low, wherever you're intelligent. He says, it doesn't matter. I'm indebted to every single person. The idea being no one is excluded from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no exclusions at all from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's something we need to remember. I mean, have you ever felt like that in your heart? I don't want to witness that guy. I'm not going to tell that guy about Jesus. You know, that's what you're saying when you get turned off and you walk away from or something like that. It's a little saying a little prayer in your heart. We're all guilty of that. Paul was saying, he says, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ was for everybody. Paul was a debtor, as he says in here, he says, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians. Paul was a debtor to humanity, not, and it's he's a debtor. It's not because he owes the world anything. Okay it's not like the world's done something great for Paul and Paul owes the world something it has nothing to do with that Paul's ultimate debt is to God and basically what the, and his debt is to God and the payout is to the world the payout is to the gentile world but it's not because of anything you know he owes them it's because of what he freely received from God he's indebted to the world because he has received something freely from God, And because he's received this freely, that has made him indebted to the Gentile world, to the entire world. Paul, by the grace of God, was, like us, a recipient of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he was. He was a recipient of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, by God's grace, possessed, think about this. By God's grace, he possessed the greatest treasure in all of eternity. I mean, can anyone find anything more valuable in all of eternity than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can anybody find anything more valuable? There's nothing more valuable than all of that. Paul's attitude of indebtedness to the lost world, it comes from his love for God. See, that's why he he says I'm a debtor to the world because of his love for God. That's where that came from. That's where it came from. Everything we do for God, everything we do for Jesus, it has to be motivated by love for him. Now, I was reading a little thing about, about Hudson Taylor. And, you know, towards the end of his life, I guess it was, and someone was commenting, you know, how he, how he did so much and gave up so much and all these things because of his love for the people of the Orient. And Hudson Taylor corrected them. He says, it wasn't for a love for them. It was my love for God. That's what it was. It was my love for God. It's an important distinction. It's an important distinction. It has to be motivated by love for him. ministry not motivated by love for God will ultimately fail. Ministry, ministry not motivated by love for God will ultimately fail. It will fail to produce fruit. And glory to God. It will fail to produce fruit to God. It will fail to produce glory to God. People burn out in ministry all the time. And the reason they do is because they're not motivated by love for God. And I've seen it. I've seen in, in denominations. And I've seen it in movements. Where you've got a whole bunch of assistants. And a whole staff. And all these types of things. And they're looking at this guy. who, Whatever he is. A senior pastor. Executive pastor. they got all kinds of names for these guys. And everything. Like that, Bible tells me you're you're you're, it's a shepherd, it's an under shepherd, but that they got all these names, and they all walk around and think I'm here to serve this man up there, and you're not. You're there to serve God, and anything you do to Him has to come because of your service to God, not to that person. And this my way or the highway or dictators at the top—it's nonsense, and it's and it's destroying. The power of the church, is it's, it's taking things out. It's not doing things biblically. It's wrong. And people burn out ministry. And when you see high turnovers in a church where staff turns over fast and all that kind of stuff, that's why, because people are serving man and because a man at the top expects to be served. And it's wrong. And it creates, it create, creates burnout. It's a fruitless ministry and it brings no glory to God whatsoever. But what Paul is, he's looking at these people That's not so with Paul. Everything about Paul, he did everything he did for his love of God is why he did it. He did it for his love of God. Paul was a man with a burden for a lost world. That's what it was. And he goes on, he wraps up, he says, he says, for for so much is in me that I am ready or, or I'm I'm eager, you know, like I'm, I, I can hardly wait to get there, you know, like, like I'm chomping at the bit, you know, like I'm, I'm a racehorse. Open the gate and let me run my race type of thing. I mean, there's an eagerness about Paul that he wants to share the gospel of the lost world. Paul's sense of debt produced in him an incredible eagerness, an incredible eagerness to evangelize. It created an eagerness in him to fulfill the call that God had given. To him, that's what it did for him. It created an eagerness to be a part of that. It created a sense to evangelize the world in Rome or any other door. Paul had had desires and hopes to get to Spain. All of that was there, and he all had that desire to take to that. And all of that was there. We're going to button up here. don't time? What time it is? We're going to button up here. I can't go into sixteen and seventeen. We're going to have to wait till next week for that because we'll be here for another hour and a half, I think, if I try to go to 16 and 17. But praise the Lord. What an opening, huh? What an opening. Read ahead, read often, dig in. But I just pray to God that these things we saw tonight, the things we're going to see as we go through this, I'm, I'm just really praying that God will do a mighty, powerful work in each and every one of us and just really. You know, put these things deep within our hearts. You know, are we truly a bond servant of Jesus Christ? Do we truly feel a sense of, of indebtedness to the world because of what Christ has done for us? You know, you know, seeking God's call in our life and you know, being obedient to the call that the call that God has given in our life. I mean, there's so much in here, and it's so rich and it's so full. But it's a prayer. What I have in my heart is that it just it, it changes me. It changes me. And it changes all. That's a prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just come before you. We love you. We love you. You're an awesome God. What a, what a rich, powerful, wonderful, awesome book, Lord. It's just amazing. And just digging into this. Book of Romans and getting started, it, it, it's like a it's just like a like a pool that has has no bottom to it. The depth of this book, it's just incredible, Lord. But I pray, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. So you promise us in second John, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you will teach each and every one of us. You'll open up your word to all of our hearts. You'll, you'll open up our ears to hear what you have to say. You'll open up our, our hearts to receive what you have to say and lord i pray and i ask with everything i have that we would all have the courage because you're going to tell us some incredible things there's conviction coming and that we would in obedience lord consider everything a loss for your sake that we would be obedient regardless of cost or consequences for your glory i just pray for that lord And I just commit that to you. Lord, we love you. We praise you. I ask that you would just uh, be with us as we we discuss, talk, fellowship, Lord, that your spirit would be poured out upon us through all of this. And I just pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen.